0: Hey everyone, welcome to the Faith Chapel podcast. We are so glad to have you join us. Faith Chapel exists to help people follow Jesus, be transformed by Jesus, and be on mission with Jesus. No matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you're welcome here. If you have any questions about who we are or what you hear, you can visit faithchapel.cc or email podcast at faithchapel.cc. We'd love to hear from you. All right, let's dive into this week's message. Oh, man, that is so cool. I love getting to celebrate baptisms. Well, my name is Jordan, if we haven't yet had the chance to meet, and I'm the digital discipleship pastor here at Faith Chapel. And so I want to say a special and unique welcome to those who are joining online. It is so good to have you with us today. And I just want to say, if you're spiritually unresolved and you're here, I just want to say welcome. Maybe you came to Christmas services last weekend, or maybe you're just checking things out. And I just want to say thanks for taking a risk. Thanks for coming to church and exploring what it means to follow Jesus. We, we are so glad that you would, you would join us today. Well, it's that time of the year, right, where we start getting emails, we start seeing advertisements, we start getting uh, coupons for New Year, New You. That's the message that's circling around us, that it's time to to start transforming your life, start start to become the person you always wanted to be, and everybody's, in fact, if you have a gym membership, this week, maybe even today, you're going to start seeing people in the gym you never knew had a gym membership Right? Or maybe you just got a gym membership and so this is going to be the week to start something new. Right, We've got New Year's resolutions. We've got all these things happening that are promising to help us become the person we've always wanted to be. Which in and of itself, I don't think it's a bad Thing. I think it speaks to something good in, in humanity, that we want to have progress, we want to grow, we want to leave bad things behind and step into new, better things. And for me personally, I love that type of stuff. I love new rhythms. I love stepping in, like, fall, new year, those type of natural changes in rhythm, I just latch onto them because I love building new habits and making goals and thinking about things that I can do to grow but what if there was something more important than any of those advertisements, something more important than that new diet, something more important than the gym membership, something more important than starting a budget this year? What if it's not a side hustle, getting skinnier or getting ripped or, or getting that gym membership? What, what I wonder is if, if there's something that's... In fact, I've been, as I've been preparing for this week, there's been a question that's been been just circling in my head and, and it's all about our heart, it's all about our posture. And the question that's been been in my head is, can I be close to Jesus in proximity but far from him in my heart? That can I can I be close yet far away from Jesus? And so what I want to talk about today, and this is, I'm actually going to start to sound like those emails that you've probably deleted like 10 of them even just this morning, but I think this is one of the greatest things that we can do this year. I think the biggest change that you could make would be a change in your heart, a change in your posture, because over time, I think it will yield big results. So as we look forward to the year, I think you could make one small change in your heart and your posture And then in one year, you're going to find that that small change has yielded huge, huge results. This could transform your life. This could be the most important change you make. And the danger is, and again, I'm going to sound like another marketer, right? I'm just going to sound like another email here. I'm going to give you the danger. The danger is if we don't make this change, if I don't make this change, we might end up where we never Wanted to be, And that sounds like, oh, wow, that's intense, but I mean it. I, I, I believe this to the core of who I am. I've been wrestling with this the last couple of weeks, and I genuinely believe that if we don't make this change in our heart and our posture, that we could end up in a place that we, don't, we never intended to. And so today we're going to look at the story of, of Mary Magdalene. And, and, and some of you, if you've grown up in the church, you've, you may have heard this story before. I've heard it several times growing up in the church, and this is a short This is a short passage. It's about eight verses, but it is packed with characters. It's packed with plot. And I think it can serve as a mirror for our own lives and our own hearts to reflect on as we look to this new year. So let's read in John chapter 12, verses one through eight. It says, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. this uh, portion of scripture is that we're at right near the end of Jesus' earthly life. This is right before the Passover festival, which means there's about to be a lot of hubbub in the towns as people are getting together with friends and family. They're going to prepare for it, they're going to be having feasts, having dinners. And prior to this, Lazarus, so the chapter right before this, Lazarus is raised from the dead. And I've read this story, like I said, several times, and I've never noticed this, but all of a sudden I'm like, oh my gosh, there's a, there's a guy who used to be dead and he's alive. He's a part of this story. And for some reason, the light bulb turned on. I was like, oh, I get it. But Lazarus is raised from the dead right before this. And this is a problem because we see in the chapter right before this, that the Pharisees find out that Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. And they're, they make concrete plans to kill Jesus at this moment, and in fact there's a subsect of the Pharisees these religious leaders called the Sadducees and they don't believe in the resurrection at all and so for Lazarus to be raised from the dead from the dead is a threat to their theology, it's a threat to their power, it's a threat to everything they've established. And so these religious leaders have, have essentially put a bounty on Jesus' head. They haven't put an actual, the story doesn't say that they've put a price on it, but they say, hey, we want anybody who has information about where Jesus is, would you pass that along to us so we can kill him? They want to put an end to Jesus' life. And so they're in Lazarus' town, it's a town called Bethany, which means the house of of the poor, and there's some really, really distinct characters at this dinner. So we're going to take a look at each character and see what we can learn from each one of them. So first we have Martha. And Martha is serving. And it, it, this, this account doesn't give us much to hang on with Martha. But if, if you're familiar with who Martha is, there's a couple other accounts about Mary and Martha. And Martha is always the one with the bad attitude. If you've heard this other account of Martha, Martha just is kind of getting on Mary because Mary sits at Jesus' feet in the other account. And Martha's like, what is she doing? She should be helping. She should be, she should be serving with me. And so we see this other account kind of paints Martha in a bad light. But what I love about this particular account is we don't see that this time. We see that Martha has created an environment for Jesus' honor. They're at a dinner in Jesus' honor, and Martha is serving. They don't, they don't, everything in the Bible is put there for a reason, and so for them to say Martha is serving is kind of nodding that, yes, Martha's doing it right this time. And so, she didn't give up on serving. She didn't stop serving because one time she got it wrong. She continues to try to create environments where people can come and eat and recline. And so she refocused her service to be an act of worship. And I love that we see Martha in this light. So what can we learn from Martha? That our posture is Greater than doing the right thing. Because in both cases, in both accounts, and in, in all the accounts of Martha, we find her serving, but in one of them, she kind of gets in trouble. And then in this one, her posture is in the right place. Her posture is to create an environment where Jesus can be honored. That it's not about us, it's about the other. That in, in the other accounts of Martha, where, where she's in trouble, she's made it about herself. But in this account, it's all about Jesus. It's all about creating this environment where Jesus can be honored. It's about serving others to honor them. Then we have Lazarus. And like I said, in the prior chapter, Lazarus was raised from the dead. So can you imagine what it was like to be Lazarus? Can you imagine the questions that this guy would have faced going back to his hometown. It says that in Bethany, this is the, the place where he was raised. So if you went back to your hometown, you were dead and now you're alive, I bet here's some of the questions that people would be constantly barraging you with. What was it like? What did you see? What did you hear? Are you really alive? Like, is this really you? Are you the person that you were before? And so there would be questions surrounding him all the time and so we find that there would be this spectacle following Lazarus as he's moving around that people would be even trying to trying to confirm with their own eyes to say hey I heard this story Lazarus that you were you were raised from the dead and so they'd be trying to find him they'd be trying to seek him out and say I need to see I need to confirm with my own eyes that you are actually alive but Lazarus didn't hide. What we see is that Lazarus actually goes back to his hometown, and he's among friends and family. And I, and I love this because he could have hidden. He could have said, you know what, I'm not going to put up the, with the questions. I'm not going to put up with the chaos. I'm not going to put up with the drama. I'm going to go into hiding. I'm going to move. I'm going to go to a different town. But instead, we find him at this dinner back at home. And he also could have had this posture. I imagine that being someone who was dead and is now alive, that you were raised raised to life again, that you might have this posture of, man, you mere mortals have no idea what it's like, right? Wouldn't you just kind of begin to have this sense of self-importance of, oh man, I've seen the other side and I came back check me out i know that i probably would have a tendency to feel pretty pretty awesome and potentially feel like i'm better than other people that i understand something more than others do but lazarus doesn't take that posture he's again he's around friends he's around family so what can we learn from lazarus be among the people be among the people. Lazarus chose to still stay among people that he knew. He faced the questions. He went back. He's around those that he already knows. He doesn't hide. The whole point of being healed is to be a witness, right? So I th- See, I think as, as Christians, if you choose to follow Jesus, we would say that 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 we're healed, that we've been raised to life, right? Our spirit has been brought back to life. We've been regenerated. And one of the things that can happen is I think we can, we can accidentally try and create insulation around ourselves. We can tend to create these Christian clubs and, and put ourselves in safe situations. Yeah, I think what we see in Lazarus is, is that maybe what we can do is actually be around the people that we come from. We can be around the people who are a little bit different than us. Sometimes the questions of why are you different, they get tiring, they get hard, they get sometimes awkward or maybe even frustrating or maybe just uncomfortable. But Lazarus chose to face those questions, chose to receive those questions, and so we can be people who step into that as well. Because the whole point of being healed is to be a witness to Jesus' power and to show people what he's like. And then we have Mary. Right? This is a dinner in honor of Jesus. And so what, is, what does Mary do? Mary takes this incredibly expensive jar of nard or perfume. She takes this jar, she gets down, she pours it out, the entire thing. Pours it on the ground then she lets down her hair. I can't illustrate that for you now. <laughs> and then she wipes it up and she cleans it up. And when we're talking expensive, I want you to understand how expensive this would be. So some, uh, you can fact check me on this. I don't know if it's accurate, but in my research, I found out that the median individual American income for 2022 was about $54,000. Okay, that's for one person, that's medium average. So let's just for the sake of our, our case today to make this sting a little bit, what Mary does is she takes a $54,000 jar of perfume and pours the whole thing out. Empties it. Gone. Fifty-four. I mean, this better smell great <laughs> for 54. I don't even know what it's made of. I don't know what nard is, but it's, apparently it smells great because it's worth $54,000. And she pours it out. Now, now picture this. You're at a dinner. This is, this is a, a little bit of an awkward moment, right? Because, because you're not just going to interrupt for, th- this isn't customary to you in this moment, all of a sudden just change and do this and pour perfume on someone's feet. This is not a normal thing to do. But Mary steps into this. And so there's several things that are happening as she does this. Now, it is customary for a house guest to have their feet washed when they enter, but normally that's done by a servant. Normally a servant would handle that. But for Mary to choose to wash Jesus' feet shows us that her posture is one of a servant, that she's not above doing this work. So she shows up as a servant to wash his feet. The next thing that's going on is that She brings this, again, expensive jar of perfume, which shows how much she worships Jesus. It shows how high she views him, that she brings the best she has. And it's only worthy of Jesus' feet. Her $54,000 of perfume is only worthy to be poured out on his gross, stinky feet. And, and I think what would have happened is, is because her worship was so high of Jesus that her best was only good for the lowest part of him, that if she would have had a more expensive jar of perfume, she would have brought that. Because in her mind, there was nothing that was too much for Jesus. There was no offering that she could bring that was too much for her King. And, and, and this, the header above these accounts of, of this moment say that it's Jesus anointed at Bethany. And I love that because it's pointing to something that happens throughout Scripture. We see other people anointed. We have Aaron in the Old Testament who's anointed as a priest. We have King David who's anointed as a king. And so in this moment, maybe conscious, maybe subconscious, but I love that what Mary is doing is she's anointing Jesus. She's on her knees as a servant, and she's saying, I'm anointing you as my king. So in this moment of worship, in this moment of offering, she's saying, you're my king. You are the one that I will follow. And then she's doing something else. She lets her hair down, which in our, in our day and age, in our culture, that literally means nothing. We, would, we wouldn't think twice about this act. But in their culture, this would have been shocking, scandalous, and highly suggestive. Because for women in this culture, you didn't let your hair down among men unless they were your husband. Because you were making yourself available. And she wasn't doing that to Jesus. That's not what she's doing she's using it to to wipe his feet. It's an act of service and worship. But for the people watching, for the men in the room, they would have have felt so uncomfortable. They probably in their minds would be thinking, Jesus, make this moment stop, please. Do you see what she's doing? Do you see what she's communicating? She can't do that. This is not okay. And even for some of the men to see a woman doing this, the men watching might have had to keep their own heart in check to see her making herself available in this way. And again, she's not making a pass at Jesus. That's not what's going on. This is an act of worship. But the way she does it creates a scene, creates a moment. But what I love about what she's doing is she does it anyway because she's creating an occasion to worship Jesus. That she steps into this and she's, again, we're at a dinner party. This is not a normal time for worship, but she creates an opportunity. She creates an occasion to worship her king. She does it in an extravagant, costly way. That she says, I'm going to bring my best. I'm going to bring the most expensive thing I have and I'm going to worship and I'm going to worship all out with it. And I'm going to do it in a way that other people are going to judge me for. They're going to think it's messy. They're going to think it's wrong. But I'm going to do it anyway because there's nothing that's too much for my king. So what can we learn? We can create an opportunity. That There's going to be opportunities around us that... that we can create to worship Jesus, that we can step into situations that aren't maybe normally for that, but we can repurpose them and we can create opportunities to worship and to honor Jesus. That maybe we don't care what people think, that some of the ways that we choose to step into this might mean that we have to do it even though we know it might be a little bit messy, a little bit clumsy, and people might judge us for it. And worship will cost you. Worship, in in, in our day and age, in America, where we live, we have a wonderful, wonderful freedom that we get to gather like this and we get to worship. And so there's not a lot of cost to our worship very often. But just because we can do it in freedom doesn't mean it should be cheap. And our worship, there will be times where our worship will cost us something. And worship. Change in atmosphere. One of my favorite phrases of this entire passage is that the fragrance filled the room. The smell filled the whole space, and we're still talking about it today. It changed the atmosphere so much that I'm standing here today telling you about how much it changed the atmosphere. Our worship can change an atmosphere, and then. We have Judas. Now, I I don't know, maybe you've grown up with a story so you know who Judas is, but in our culture, I think it's pretty common that we would know that somebody who's called a Judas, that it's synonymous with the word betrayal, right? Like if somebody betrays you, you would call them, hey, don't be a Judas, which is a really unfortunate legacy. Like that is just a bummer that that's what you would be known for is to be a betrayer. But it's pretty common that if you are a Judas, you are a betrayer. And 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 we find Judas, he's one of the twelve, and he's the treasurer for the group. And so his job was to collect all the funds. So Jesus and the disciples, they were doing ministry in their area and they were financially supported by other people in the community. And they didn't have a whole lot, but it was Judas' job to take that money, collect it. He'd put it in a small box or a purse and then he would distribute it as they needed to, to provide for their, their travel, for their food, for, for whatever they, they had coming up. And then what was customary, what they, their, their whole ethos was, was if there's anything left over, they would give that to the poor. And that was how things, and they didn't have a lot, but that was how things worked. That was Judas's job. But what we find is that Judas was helping himself to that pot, that he was pulling from it for his own comfort. And so as as this person, we see that there's this pattern that's going on, and he decides to raise his hand and say, whoa, hold on, what's going on here? I don't like what she's doing. Because he thinks, as he looks at Mary pouring out, again, a $54,000 jar of perfume, he thinks it's wasted. He looks on with judgment, he looks on with greed, and he asks a question. He says, why don't we sell this and give it to the poor? Let's be generous. I, I read a quote about Judas, and it said that Judas was one of their number, but not one of their nature. Which is pointing to the fact that even though he was in the inner circle of Jesus, he was one of the disciples, he didn't have the character of Jesus or the character of the rest of the group. And we see that in his in the way he even sets up his question. Everything he's doing is masking his greed in generosity. He's masking his, his shock at wasting all that money in generosity. He's saying, hey, hey, hey let's, let's not waste that. Let's, uh, yeah, let's give it to the poor. And so he's masking his greed. He's masking his desire in generosity. And we see that because he's had this pattern That there's this hidden sin that's going on in his life. He's been doing this for a long time. This isn't the first time he's come into contact with greed. He's been taking money for a while. And so he's got this idol. He has an idol of greed. And so he's close to Jesus, physically close. He's one of the 12. He's even at a dinner in Jesus' honor. You really can't get that much closer in proximity to Jesus, yet his heart is far off. And I wonder if this is the straw that broke Judas' back. I wonder if this is the moment that causes him to snap. I don't know about you, but since I've heard the story of Jesus and the story of Judas so many times, often I look at Judas and I think, how could you be so close to Jesus? How could you be hanging out with the son of God and you betray him? What has to be wrong with you as a person to do that? Like, that's always been my question. I just didn't get it. So my, my thinking is, oh, Judas just must, must have been the worst. That guy must have just been awful. But as we, as we look at this, as I've looked at this, I don't think it was that hard to become Judas because this hidden sin, this, this, this process, I think he ended up far from Jesus by just being 1 degree off. Over time, over time and then pretty soon he's here. And in this moment I wonder if this is the straw that broke his his back as he's looking at this woman pour out this perfume if he looked at that and said, "No, that's too much for Jesus. That's not how we worship. That's too costly." that he was judging the way that Mary worshipped. He was judging how she did it. He was judging the mess, the scandal, the waste. That maybe for Judas, being in Bethany, the house of the poor, surrounded potentially by poverty, surrounded by discontent, that he in his own heart was discontent. And so when Jesus doesn't stop her, when Jesus says, leave her alone, Maybe that was Judas's cue, and he goes, I can't do this anymore. You are not the king I thought you were. If you're okay with this, Jesus, if you're okay with wasting $54,000, I can't follow you anymore. That's not what I signed up for. And so then, what do we know Jesus, Judas did? It could have been as early as the next day, but at least over the next several days, Judas, knowing the Pharisees are looking for Jesus, he goes and he finds his money. If Jesus, if you're gonna waste $54,000, I'm gonna go find it somewhere else. If you can't provide that for me, I know some guys who will, goes to the Pharisees and says, you know what, I thought he was my king, but he's not. We need to take that guy down. He's not what I stand for. And in that moment, we see something play out in Judas's heart that Jesus talks about before. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so we see Judas exactly where his treasure is. And then Judas, in that moment, finds himself in complete opposition to the Son of God, in complete opposition to Jesus. He is close physically, yet far away. So what can we learn from Judas We contend to make Jesus in our own image. I think what Judas was looking for in that moment is for Jesus to do things the way Judas wanted him to do it. Jesus, make this moment stop. Jesus, tell her to to bottle that up. Jesus, tell her to stop. We could do so much more with that money. Jesus, don't waste that. Jesus, can we instead create comfort? Jesus, can we do it my way? And I contend to do this. I can tend to try and make Jesus in my own image, that I want his kingdom to look a lot more like my kingdom. Our inner thoughts and our hidden sin create a trajectory. I don't think Judas woke up that day and said, You know what I'm going to do today? I'm going to oppose the Son of God, I'm going to go toe to toe with him. I don't think he ended up there on purpose. I think his hidden sin, his inner thoughts, his greed, his his heart being just a little bit out of tune brought him to a place, again, where he just separated. He was on a trajectory, and that trajectory led him to being in complete opposition to Jesus. And I think Jesus will make us uncomfortable. Jesus will call our values into question. So what will our posture be? And then we have Jesus. And what does Jesus do? I love this. In all, this, in all this moment that's going on, he just says, Leave her alone. Leave her alone. He accepts her offering. He accepts this moment of worship. He accepts what she's doing. And he's not offended by the way she's doing it, he's not offended by the cost, he's not offended by the scandal. He knows her heart. He knows her posture. And, I, and, and one of the things that I think we see as well is that I, as, I, as I look at this, I'm a little bit conflicted because Judas asks actually a pretty decent question, right? Like, I mean, when we're talking about worship or generosity, for Judas to pause and go, hey, that's a, that's a really nice bottle of perfume. Should we... Should we maybe be generous with that? Like, that's not a bad question, right? Like, it's like, oh yeah, that's actually decent. That, we should explore that. But what I love about what Jesus does is he knows that Judas's heart is in the wrong place. And so Jesus says we need to have wisdom in, in, in how we do this because there will be opportunities to be generous and there will be opportunities to worship extravagantly, but all of it comes back to our posture, it always comes back to our heart. And when we do decide to worship extravagantly, our worship is not wasted. Our worship is not wasted. So we have this act, we have almost this Mary versus Judas moment. And Mary's worship changed the environment. I love that even in the midst of all the awkwardness, all the things that were amiss, that the result is the fragrance filled the house, that this turned into a moment of extravagant, beautiful, fragrant worship, that she chose discomfort. She chose to step into this uncomfortable moment to worship, even though it cost her greatly. And we will have invitations to worship extravagantly as well. And when our heart is right, our worship is not wasted. And what I want to say too, I want to clarify something. This is not permission for us to create comfort for ourselves as followers of Jesus. This is not permission to say, you know what? If it's for Jesus, it, we should do the best, the brightest, the, the, the most comfortable. If it's for Jesus, it's always the best because that can be twisted just a little bit. And, and, and what we see in this account is the disciples benefited zero from this offering, right? It was poured out, all gone one time, one time use. The disciples weren't more comfortable as a result. They didn't have more. And so this is not permission to create comfort for ourselves. This is an invitation to honor Jesus with extravagance. And so shift the environment. So here's the mirror. Where do you see yourself? As you look at all these characters from Martha to Lazarus to Mary to Judas where do you see yourself? I know for me, as I've reflected on this, unfortunately, this is really unfortunate, but I've, un- I've seen a lot of Judas in my heart sometimes, that I'm pretty quick to judge. I'm pretty quick to, to look at other people and go, oh man, that's not how you worship. That's not what it should look like. You're doing it wrong. That's not my way. I'm pretty quick to look for comfort. I'm pretty quick to find it. I'm pretty good at it. And I'm pretty quick to justify it. I've got some pretty sharp words that I can twist to make it all okay. And so I'm faced with, we're faced with a question of who will we be? What will our posture be? Can we be close? Can I be close to Jesus in proximity yet so far off? Can I find myself in the rhythm of religion where I'm going to church or maybe I'm in the scripture and and maybe I'm doing all the right things that religion would say yet my heart doesn't know the son of God. My heart is not connected to him that my values are not aligned with his. And so this coming year I think this is the biggest change we all can make. That as you look to 2023, as you look to even the next several years, that if you want to see your life transformed, I think this is the biggest change we can make. It's who will I worship? It's it's a one degree change. It's a posture shift. It's an invitation to one degree shift to transform your heart and to transform your life. And we can make Something beautiful from it. And this is what that one degree shift might look like that we will choose to create opportunities for worship. That's what we'll choose to do. Mary did not wait for someone else to initiate, so neither will we. We will choose to initiate opportunities for worship. That we will choose to honor Jesus over our own comfort. That when that is called into question, we would choose to honor Jesus. And then as a result, we would change the environment. Our worship can be a fragrance, pleasing both to Jesus and to others. It will change spaces. It will fill spaces. So as we conclude, I wanna ask several questions to help us process. The first question is this, what are you worshiping? Is it Jesus or has something else stolen your heart? Has something else taken it? I I even picture myself, here's, here's the question I'm asking. Picture this jar of expensive perfume and as somebody's pouring it out, what would you look at and say, that's too much for Jesus? Maybe it's a dollar amount, maybe it's a candidate, maybe it's an ideal, maybe it's a worldview, but I bet there's something that if you imagine someone pouring it out and wasting it, that you go, nope, no, that's too much for Jesus. And if your heart is there, then I think that's stolen your heart a bit. So what are you worshiping? Question number two, how often does your worship cost you something? Could be financial, could be social. Have you worshiped extravagantly? And then finally, does your worship change the environment. We can bring our offerings of worship knowing this, our worship is not wasted. We hope that this helps you take your next step on your spiritual journey. If you'd like to get involved with the work and ministry of Faith Chapel, visit faithchapel.cc and click on Next Steps. If you'd like to speak to a pastor or connect with us in any way, email connect at faithchapel.cc. We look forward to connecting with you soon.